Welcome to episode 165 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome and thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, I'm joined today by John Sallett, who recently joined Steptoe and previously was uh, general counsel of the FCC, as well as deputy assistant attorney general in the antitrust division at the Justice Department in the Obama administration. Welcome, John. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, and uh, by Michael Vattis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner at Steptoe's New York office. Uh, good to have you back, Michael. Good morning. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We are uh, planning to have a uh, an interview, or at least hoping to have an interview, uh, uh, but it's been delayed uh, with Kevin Mandia uh, about some of the new entrants into the cybersecurity uh, or cyber insecurity field. Uh, uh, we'll release that separately from this one so you get your news on time. Uh, uh, we might as well jump right into WannaCry. The whole um, episode is more or less behind us, except for the finger-pointing and blame-assigning. Uh, and boy, is that uh, is, uh, being embraced with enthusiasm. I think there, there's going to be more time spent on blaming people than uh, uh, on fixing the uh, uh, the WannaCry uh, exploits uh, that were identified. Uh, so, Who's getting blamed? Uh, uh, Michael, um, uh, I'm counting one, two, three, four, at least four different uh, possible uh, uh, finger pointing. Uh, um, and the head of GCHQ, the intelligence agency, said it was Microsoft's fault because Microsoft did not uh, – uh, support uh, – provide security support for its Windows XP system um, – even though apparently they already had written the support and maybe even were preparing it uh, for those who had paid a very large sum for out of uh, uh, the period of support uh, uh, security updates. Uh, uh, but they didn't release it generally, and there was quite a bit of focus on XP as a uh, a major source of problems and the failure to uh, patch it uh, um, was criticized out of GCHQ. I should say uh, the way this WannaCry uh, um, exploit worked is it took advantage of an NSA or an allegedly NSA uh, um, tool the tool had been released by the shadow brokers who are associated with the Russian government, but in most people's minds, uh, and then it was adopted uh, in the WannaCry um, uh, ransomware worm, uh, and uh, uh, before it was adopted, before it was released, Microsoft had released up security updates that should have protected against it, uh, um, but the, their security updates only went back so far in time. Uh, uh, so that's that's the update. You get to point your fingers at whoever you are least sympathetic to. Uh, um, uh, Michael, what did you think of the argument that Microsoft should have done more here? Well, it seems to me everybody shares some responsibility so I, I you know i don't get the idea that one party is is responsible and everyone else is an innocent um i i think you can you can fairly say that each of those entities that you mentioned nsa russia microsoft and 
uh, companies that were victimized uh, have some responsibility, and I don't find that too difficult a concept to, <laughs> to comprehend. Um, they're all a but-for uh, uh, element of causation here. Um, in some ways, I think you could argue that Microsoft uh, may be the, the least culpable um, if, in fact, they did uh, issue patches for um, the vast majority of their software that, that is still out there. Um, but I, I think there are still facts that remain to be seen about you know which versions of Windows were the, the most affected uh, and whatnot. But it, it does seem to me at the end of the day that a big part of the problem was lots and lots of companies just failed to update uh, their software and, and download the patches that were available to them. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the right answer. That uh, uh, Microsoft. Uh, it turns out that XP was not the problem. Uh, there was very little. The, this um, attack didn't work very well on XP. XP, if it worked at all, uh, and so a lot of people had jumped to the conclusion that um, all the uh, machines that were going down were XP machines. That does not seem to have been the case. Uh, instead, it looks as though Windows Seven was the real problem. That almost Almost all of the broken machines were uh, uh, Windows 7 machines, and those machines had a patch. Microsoft issued the patch, but it had to be installed uh, uh, manually, or at least it wasn't uh, uh, downloaded automatically the way it was for Windows 10. Uh, And so uh, uh, if you had not been quite quick to patch your system, then your system was going to be taken down if it was a Windows 7 system. Uh, and so that's it's hard to, uh, to say that Microsoft did something wrong there uh, uh, since they did get the patch out before the exploit. Um, and the, the other interesting element is um, it, it at least seems uh, uh, that apparently a, a lot of the victims were using pirated software. So, you know, that that's another... Um, uh, element of this that I think complicates things in terms of according blame. I have to say the the international politics of this are hilarious. Uh, if you you know uh, are are willing to take that view of it, uh, because yeah, it was uh, the U.S. came out of this really almost unscathed. Uh, uh, there were a few uh, uh, companies that that had problems, but. There was very little U.S. Uh, uh, interference here, uh, uh, and maybe even Western Europe, although the National Health Service uh, in the U.K. took a hit. We don't quite know why, probably because of the failure to manually update some of their Windows 7 machines. Um, but the Chinese took a massive hit because they were running pirated software and therefore didn't have the the security upgrades uh, uh, and didn't get them when uh, they were released by uh, the uh, uh, by Microsoft so uh, China took a big hit Russia took a pretty big hit because there's plenty of piracy there and India took a big hit um, and then ironically it looks as though the Russians, if they if they released this under shadow brokers, ended up uh, reflecting the harm back on themselves. But it turns out that uh, there are a lot of people who think that the North Koreans actually wrote the ransomware and jammed in um, the NSA exploit right at the end, uh, which caused a massive uh, uh, out of control distribution of the worm. Yeah, which which introduces another element of the international politics that that you alluded to earlier. Um, if you've got North Korea 
uh, being the one responsible for spreading this um, and it affecting uh, Russia and China very hard, that just um, uh, that doesn't make their patrons very happy. Yeah, you keep thinking. I keep, I keep thinking. Surely, sooner or later, the North Koreans are going to just royally uh, annoy the uh, uh, Chinese to the point where the Chinese do something about it. But right now, you know, the Chinese are letting North Korea use the North China. Uh, uh, internet uh, uh, infrastructure to do all the uh, attacks that they're doing. I would have thought that at a minimum the Chinese would say, okay, we're going to shut that down because uh, it's killing us down here, uh, uh, all the machines that won't run. And it's not only the infrastructure. I mean, from from what I've read, uh, a, a lot of the, the actual hackers are physically located in China and, and other Asian countries. Um, and you've got to believe that Chinese intelligence services know about the the existence of at least some of these people in their own territory. Yep. So the uh, the blaming of NSA has been pretty uh, widespread as well, and now several senators introduced what they call the Patch Act, but it's really designed to formalize the uh, vulnerability equities process uh, um, so that when NSA or FBI or CIA finds a vulnerability that they want to use to exploit to gain access to a system, they have to first go through a process of deciding whether they're going to use it or whether they're just going to notify the company whose uh, software they found a, a, a flaw in, uh, and it, that, that process now exists and it's run by the National Security Council, um, this act would say, oh, you have to do that uh, in a process run by the Department of Homeland Security, which makes it a very uh, security-focused and, uh, and non-intelligence-focused process. Yeah, it's interesting. It's the first time Congress is getting involved in this, and uh, you know, it, it, to me, it makes sense. This is a this is a, an issue that obviously affects uh, our national security and our economy, as well as law enforcement investigations and and intelligence capabilities. So uh, it, it does seem to me appropriate that Congress have have some role in this. Uh, and from what I've seen of this this bill, um, it it has uh, a pretty light hand in terms of uh, dictating. Um, what the considerations should be and, and things like that. But, but right now, a lot of focus is on uh, shifting the, the, the chairmanship to DHS, as, as you mentioned, and, and also adding the FBI as a, as a statutory member. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how far this, this thing goes. I, I imagine there'll be a lot of pushback from the executive branch just because they like to keep things um, within the executive branch's own prerogatives without congressional interference. But uh, I, at least it, from my point of view, it, it it's appropriate for Congress to have some involvement here. Yeah, I'm 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 more skeptical. Uh, I I think first you. Of course you're, you are. Of course I exactly. <laughs> it's it's in my nature. Uh, but we look we we're 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 complaining about all these things leaking, and then we're going to bring in a bunch of civilian agencies and start briefing them on the details of uh, the problems. Uh, I'm not sure. Oh that's... my goodness! The, 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 yeah, I think I think by definition um, you're going to have vulnerabilities disclosed. Uh, through leaks before they're officially disclosed by yeah. by the government agencies. So I, I I think it would be fair to say okay if 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 you're a company uh, if, if we're looking at the flaws of a particular company we also need to know does that company 
cooperate with law enforcement to the extent that it can, or is it just saying, yeah, uh, too bad if you, uh, I'm not going to cooperate, you're going to have to hack your way into my product? Because if that, if that's their position, then we should be just hacking our way into their product instead of telling them about flaws that they might want to patch to, to lock us out. Uh, and maybe even, uh, ask the question whether companies who participate in this process ought to be held liable for failure to uh, patch once they have received notice. Or uh, maybe we need to know, have companies actually uh, patched in the past? Because there's no point in going through this whole process for a company that is notorious for being bad at patching its security holes. So I I think if we want to discourage this from becoming law, uh, probably getting the companies to have some skin in the game is is the best approach. Yeah, those are all interesting considerations. I mean, it's it's certainly the case already that that companies that fail to patch and and as a result uh, suffer a breach are finding themselves um, liable, at least when it comes to FTC enforcement actions, um, and and maybe, uh, you know, if if plaintiffs can establish standing in, in class action lawsuits, uh, although those are fewer and, and farther between, at least in terms of successful ones. But um, that's still, you know, it's a relatively few companies that are ever found liable for, for something that stems from a failure to patch. Yeah, I see the SEC is, is um, giving new guidance to a bunch of its regulated entities saying, uh, uh, we found a lot of problems, failure to do penetration testing. They, they actually said that most companies were pretty good about updating and patching their software, but that there were a lot of other uh, security problems among their uh, uh, among the companies that they regulate. Yeah, and that, that's not surprising to me at all. I mean, I've, I've seen that, uh, you know, uh, time and again, that, that companies are that understand now the need to, to make sure that their systems are up to date and patches are downloaded and, and things like that, uh, uh, at least to some extent. But, you know, when it comes to risk assessments, and penetration uh, testing, you know, those things are uh, tend to be more ex- expensive. They involve a more holistic approach, um, more involvement by the board or senior management, not just the IT people. Um, so a lot of companies tend to put those off and put those off, and then they end up never getting done in a timely way. Yeah, it's hard to fit them on a clipboard. Um, anyway, I, uh, I I agree with you. So um, I, I want to uh, switch the topic to something that Jonathan Sallett uh, is uh, um, uh, quite familiar with, which is the net neutrality uh, fight. Uh, And for those who haven't seen it, it actually is probably worth watching the exchange over net neutrality on uh, uh, YouTube. Uh, um, uh, There was a uh, YouTube, um, well, actually, John Oliver attacked the um, uh, uh, the new head of the FCC, Ajit Pai, um, made fun of him uh, for his uh, net neutrality stance, uh, which uh, Oliver opposes and has long opposed. Uh, and Oliver, uh, at one point uh, in the high point of his uh, response, starts mocking Pai's um, use of an oversized coffee mug with a Reese's peanut butter cup 
logo on it, uh, and it really does look like it holds about a pint of coffee. Uh, and uh, having mocked Pi uh, thoroughly uh, in a repeat of his uh, effort to characterize Tom Wheeler as a dingo uh, uh, in the babysitting business, uh, he uh, pulls out a trash can sized um, Reese's pieces uh, or Reese's peanut butter cup uh, uh, coffee mug to say, you know, look, uh, I'm not impressed by the size of your coffee cup. Uh, um, and then finally, uh, Ajit Pai does a uh, a reading of all the mean tweets he's received as a result of uh, John Oliver's uh, rant, including one that I thought was particularly funny that tells Ajit Pai, who I assume is from uh, uh, South Asia, to go back to Africa, were you from? Uh, and um, he comments on that and then finally uh, uh, produces a uh, a new Reese's peanut butter cup coffee mug that is the size of, you know, a, a little bit smaller than a, a small car uh, uh, to respond to um, John Oliver. So, John Sallett, uh, first, uh, what do you think of the, you know, this escalation in coffee mug uh, style of argument? Yeah. And second, what is actually happening so, now? On the first issue, I'm pretty neutral on the coffee cup issue because I am actually allergic to peanut butter. And I mean that not as a metaphorical statement, but as a literal one. So, so the logo uh, itself uh, sort of starts exactly. To set you off. I sort of walk away from the table at that point, and I leave it to them to debate the relative size of coffee cups. Um, the underlying issue is this, and it's not a new one. Consumers pay for broadband connections to take them anywhere they want to in the internet. The question, and it's been posed in front of the FCC for more than a decade at least, is whether the Companies that provide those broadband connections, the so-called ISPs, should be able to limit in any way the ability of consumers to get to lawful content, mm-hmm. right? Block it, limit it. And should they be able to make economic or technological arrangements with certain companies that advantage some content over others to the, perhaps to the detriment of consumers? That question, the so-called question of net neutrality, has been in front of the commission a while. And when I was general counsel, I argued in front of the D.C. Circuit uh, the appeal from the 2015 order. The D.C. Circuit upheld the 2015 order. What Chairman Pai wants to do, I think it's fair to say, is to reverse the 2015 order, both on legal grounds and on policy grounds. Mm-hmm. And... Let me ask this, because I was active in government in the 90s, and we had uh, Ira Magaziner, who's yep. the uh, Democratic credentials yep. no one is uh, uh, questioning, yep. uh, say, you know, hands off the Internet. Let's not regulate yeah. the Internet. Uh, that was sort of uh, centrist policy, bipartisan yep. policy for years. Yep. Uh, and now suddenly it's become, you know, unthinkable that you wouldn't regulate the Internet. Uh, uh, what what changed? I think there's two things we ought to remember. You know, Ira Magazine was a great guy and a visionary. 
But when one talks about the Internet, one does not talk only about the broadband providers. One talks about the content creators, what's called the edge yes. of the Internet, right? So when what, want, what one wants is for the edge to be a font of innovation, just as the networks are, for the edge to be able to get to consumers free of anti-competitive or unfair conduct. Now, one of the things I did in government was to be part of some significant merger reviews of big ISPs who both provide video programming, so-called cable programming, and broadband Internet access. And what the Department of Justice and the FCC saw was that in that configuration, such ISPs have both the incentive and ability to interfere with video content that can take a shot at their own video revenues. It's the economics of distribution that are at the heart of this issue. So it's it's this is all about this is largely about who's going to deliver what shows on what terms. It's going it's about the ability of entities to act as what the DC circuit called gatekeepers both in economics, and I think this is important, in speech interests, right? There's a lot of unpopular but permissible speech that goes flowing over broadband networks. There's always a question, and the 2015 rules focused on this, as to whether a gatekeeper is serving the public interest if it were to take actions that limited the, the diversity of speech. Oh, aren't we past that? I mean, good Lord, Twitter uh, and uh, Facebook uh, and maybe even Google are all over uh, uh, restricting uh, uh, news and uh, fake news or well, hate speech or uh, uh, Republicans, whatever the, uh, so uh, the, the bet noir of the day is. I don't think we are all over it because if you go back to Holmes and Brandeis, Although Holmes articulated the clear and present danger test and said there's some speech we don't protect, they also stood for the notion that diversity of speech is the best way to get to new ideas. Right. Yes. I. But if you if you asked who's more likely to restrict speech on the internet uh, uh, in the next year, Twitter or uh, uh, Verizon, I think Twitter is. So I'm not sure what the either or it takes us to. Right. In other words, the FCC has jurisdiction over the actions of broadband networks. And the question for the FCC is whether the public interest is served by a continuation of the policy in which the FCC says we will take action to keep the internet open. Mm-hmm. Now, it's my position as counsel and I will say as an individual that those actions are appropriate. That there's a long history in telecommunications that goes back to the AT&T monopoly of the mm-hmm. 20th century that says there are reasons to believe that companies can have the incentive and ability in the short term to sacrifice the interests of their own consumers and that the FCC can play an appropriate role in safeguarding consumers. What Chairman Pai has done is to express views against To the contrary, which one respects, but very importantly has started a proceeding in which anyone in America can send their views into the FCC. And apparently they are, by the millions, right? I've seen reports that there were more than a million comments filed. I know in the 2015 process there were four million. So what Chairman Pai has done with the commission is open this up now for national debate. That strikes me as a very good thing. So uh, last question. Yep. Does Milky Way contain any nuts? It's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to it because my specialization, even here at the firm, is 
Antitrust and communications, not astrophysics. So, okay. So I just wanted you to know, as a tribute to your expertise, <laughs> yeah. with Toilet Rot Premium, a Milky Way labeled coffee mug, <laughs> the size of a small swimming, bring it, bring it, drop it, yep. Uh, and, um, you know, John Oliver, eat your heart out. Ajit Pai, <laughs> eat your heart out. Uh, Jonathan, um, uh, it looks like you're doing the uh, backstroke in this. Uh, I, 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 I think it's only fair. I appreciate it. Thank you, Stuart. Okay. I, and um, uh, this week in cyber proliferation, uh, uh, we ought to uh, uh, address uh, Michael uh, Vietnam has joined the ranks of cyber and espionage enthusiasts. I'm hoping we can get uh, Kevin Mandy to talk about that. Uh, and Time had a great article about uh, – uh, actually, the New York Times uh, – about Russia as a cyber weapons proliferator, that Russian uh, uh, cyber crime is helping uh, – uh, the Iranians uh, improve their game, uh, and the Russians are meanwhile uh, using social media in a variety of sophisticated ways to attack the United States. Uh, um, any idea what the U.S. can or should be doing about any of this? You know, I don't know that there's really uh, much different that can be done about this. I think I think smaller countries have been involved in cyber espionage for a long time. I, I, I would dispute the notion that this is somehow a new development. Um, uh, you know, maybe they're, they're, some of the, the private security companies are, are doing a better job now of finding them and, and tracing them, but they've been at this for, you know, since I was, um, in this game in the government. Okay. And, and, um, back to John, I, I don't know if you followed this, but, uh, the EU fined Facebook $122 million, uh, um, uh, for things they said in the context of the WhatsApp uh, uh, acquisition, uh, um, and I think you know what the what the facts seem to be on both sides is that uh, uh, Facebook said we can't actually unify the identities of the two companies' customers, and somebody in the in Facebook actually had an idea for doing that that worked uh, that they had not told the uh, EU about, and the Commission got pretty shirty to the tune of 122 million dollars. Yeah. Competition authorities, antitrust authorities, want to have the processes work well. And Facebook has said, said in a statement last week, that it made unintentional errors. Uh, the, the European Commission notes its cooperation in the investigation. So two points. One is agencies like to have processes followed. Secondly, uh, the underlying merger was not reversed in any way. Right. And... The, so they I had, had to an find incident. a penalty other than reversing it. Right. I had an incident, a situation when I was at the Department of Justice, so-called gun jumping, right? When there's a yep. merger, the acquiring company starts controlling yes. the uh, acquiry prematurely. Very similar situation, right? We reached a settlement of, a s- s- of that nature where, look, we felt we were law enforcement officials. We had to stand up for the rules. But it didn't actually, at the end of the day, affect the decision about whether the merger was appropriate. And so I think one ought to see this as a matter of, of process. Okay. And in the context of a 17 to $20 billion deal, it, uh, $122 million uh, is just part of the cost of the deal at the end of the day. It's a, a hefty cost for screwing up. But Well, I think it's, you know, Facebook having acknowledged errors and that having been acknowledged by the commission 
demonstrates again that this doesn't really have anything to do with the underlying substance. All right. Um, thanks to John Sallett. Thanks to Michael Vadis. Uh, this has been episode 165 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, please send us your suggestions for guest interviews. Uh, uh, if they end up on the show, we'll send you a highly coveted Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, will It will not be the size of a small swimming pool, I regret to say. Uh, but do send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Coming up, we're going to be joined by David Sanger, the New York Times, who's constantly breaking news cyber stories. Ben Buchanan of Harvard's uh, Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, the author of The Cybersecurity Dilemma. Uh, And then stay tuned for a special Baker-free episode on virtual currency and blockchain applications featuring Meltem Demerors, director of the Digital Currency Group, coming up uh, in a week or two. Uh, We hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 